Chapter Twenty of Picavi by E. W. Hornung. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Way of Peace. Three years later, the man was still alone, and the church still growing under his unaided but untiring hand. Indeed, from one end, it looked almost ready for the roof. The west gable rising salient through the trees, with the original window intact underneath. But this window was the exception, the sole survivor from the fire, and for the past year the rest had been one long impediment. Even now, only the three single lights, in either transept and to the right of the porch, respectively, had been wrought to a finish from sill to arch. A mullioned window was just begun, the remainder all yawned to the sky in ragged gaps of varying width. But the village looked daily on the one good end, flanked by the west walls of either transept, which happened not to have a window between them, and were consequently finished. And the village was softening a little towards its outcast, though no man said so above his breath, nor was a living soul known to have been near him all these years, unless it was the new sexton to dig a grave, or a Lakenhall curate to make an entry in the parish register. There had, however, been one or two others, the first knocking at the study door on the evening of the first funeral, some months after Carlton's illness. Carlton was reading at the time. His heart stopped at the sound. It was repeated before he could bring himself to open the door. "'Tom Ivy!' "'That's me, sir. May I come in?' "'Surely, Tom.' The hulking mason entered awkwardly, and refused a chair. His large frame bulked abnormally in a ready-made suit of stiff black cloth. He seemed to take up half the room, as he stood and glowered, a full-length figure of surly embarrassment and dark resolve. "'There was a funeral to-day,' he began at last. "'I know.' "'That was my poor mother, Mr. Carlton.' "'Yes, I heard, Tom. I'm so sorry for you.' Their hands flew together, and were one till Carlton winced. "'There's nothing to be sorry for,' said Tom, with husky philosophy. "'Her troubles are over, poor thing. So's one of mine. You can start me to-morrow.' "'Start you, Tom?' "'Yes, sir. I mean to work for you now. I'd like to see the man who'll stop me. You've shown em all the man you are. Now that's my turn.' and the broad face beamed and darkened with alternate enthusiasm and defiance. Carlton beheld it with parted lips and startled eye, and so they stood through a long silence, till Carlton sat down with a smile. It was a singularly gentle smile as he leaned back in his worn old chair and the lamplight fell upon his face. "'After all these months,' he murmured, "'after all these months.' I fear to hide my face when I count em up, admitted Ivy bitterly. But what was the good of coming when I couldn't have come for good? And how could I in poor mother's time? It'd have meant, there's no saying what it wouldn't have meant. You mean as regards Sir Wilton? I do, Mr. Carlton. He will have been a good friend to you? Oh, yes. Did those repairs, did he? Yes, sighed Ivy. He was better than his word about them. You would hardly know the place now. 
It made a lot of difference to Mother, and I had the job. Oh. He's kept me busy, I must say. I've never wanted work. Until now, I suppose? To tell you the truth, sir, I'm at work for him still. For Sir Wilton Gleed? Yes, odd jobs about the estate. Then, my good fellow, what do you mean by offering yourself to me? Mean? exclaimed Ivy, his black determination leaping into flame. I mean as I've made up my mind to give him the good-bye for you. I'd have done that long ago if it hadn't been for Mother, but better late than never. You've shown him the man you are, and now that's my turn. Look at what you've done with your own two hands. There'll be other two from tomorrow. You shan't work yourself right to death before my eyes. Why, your hair's white with it already. Carlton wheeled further from the lamp. Not white, he murmured. But that is, sir. When did you look in a glass? I don't know. Then do you look tomorrow. That's white as snow, and your beard's grey. It's certainly too long, said Carlton, covering half with his hand. And your hand, your hand! It was scarred and horny as the mason's own. Carlton removed it from the light, but said nothing. That's done its last day's work alone, cried Tom. I start for you tomorrow, whether you want me or not. I'll show em, I'll show em. And he stood nodding savagely to himself. My dear fellow, you can't behave like that. The words fell softly after a long silence. Why can't I? Carlton gave innumerable reasons. It would put us both in the wrong, was the last. Go on working for Sir Wilton, at any rate for another year. You owe it to him, Tom. And don't you fret about me. I am a happier man than I ever deserve to be again. Last winter it was different, but God has shown me infinite mercy and compassion. And now he has sent you to me as a sign that even man may forgive me in the end. That is enough for me, Tom. You cannot do more for me than you have done to-night. But your duty you must do, by God's help, as long as it is clear as it is now. Don't bother your head about me. I am getting into the knack. Perhaps by the time I come to the roof, if I ever do, the want of a church may induce others to help me finish mine. Then, if you like, you shall come back, but I won't have you made an outcast on my account. One is enough. There were no more visits from Tom Ivy. This one came to the ears of Sir Wilton, and that diplomatist, instead of playing into the enemy's hands by discharging his man, capped all his kindness to the mason by getting him the offer of an irresistible berth in that London district for which he himself sat. Thus Sir Wilton removed a wavering ally, and at the same time renewed the lease of his allegiance. Carlton heard of it some months later, when there was another funeral, and the Lakenhall curate came in again to make the entry. This curate was a gentleman. He had a good heart and better tact, he not only conversed with Carlton, as with the perfectly normal clergyman, in perfectly normal circumstances, 
but he would prolong these conversations as far as he deemed possible without exciting a suspicion of the profound pity which inspired him. He would bring up bits of local gossip, or the latest national event. Once he let fall that Sidney Gleed was up at Cambridge, and said to stand a chance of coxing the eight, while Lydia was now a Mrs. Goldstein, the mistress of a splendid mansion in Holland Park, and another up the Thames. It was from the same source that Carton obtained belated news of George Mellis, who had come through two campaigns without a scratch, yet never had been back to play the hero on his native heath. In a word, this curate, who was a very young and rather commonplace fellow, came soon to stand for the outside world, the world of newspapers and talk, to Robert Carlton, who liked him none the less because his older eye saw through the artless arts with which the lad sought to mask his charity. The visitations of this curate, who also conducted the one weekly service in the village school, was a little arrangement between those fast friends, Sir Wilton Gleed and Canon Wilders, who would have been interested to learn the way in which their delegate improved the rare occasion of a funeral. For marriages and baptisms, the Longstow folk had taken to walking across the heath to Linkworth. Early in the second year, there came a visitor whom Robert Carlton knew at a glance, though he had never before seen him in the flesh. This was a person with the appearance of a rather dissipated sporting man, who tooled tandem through the village and pulled up at the ruins in broad daylight. The thing was thus a scandal from the first moment of its occurrence, and the cockaded groom was beset by horrified rustics before his master's red neck had disappeared among the low and ragged walls. Carlton had withdrawn into the invisible seclusion of the West End, where he was nervously scraping at the nearest stone, when the visitor appeared, only to stop short with a whistle. "'I thought this was the church the parson was building with his own hands?' "'So it is, my lord.' "'And you are what he calls his own hands?' "'No, I am he.' The visitor stared. "'You, the parson?' "'I know I don't look like one,' admitted Carlton, glancing from his ruined hands to the shabby clothes in which he worked. "'Nor can I fairly consider myself one at present. Yet I am still the only rector of this parish, and it was I who wrote to your lordship about the stone. Yours are the only quarries in this part of the country. The stone I am now using came from them.' but it is just finished, and unless you will let me have some more, I may have to stop. Otherwise I believe that I could build up to the roof in time without assistance. And why should you? My church was burned down through my own fault. I know all about that, said his lordship. What I ask is, why should you insist upon building it up single-handed? "'I didn't insist originally,' sighed Carlton. "'It is a very long story.' The Earl regarded him with a pair of very penetrating little eyes. He was an ugly man with an ugly reputation, but one of those who take as little trouble to conceal their worst characteristics as to display their best. "'To be quite frank with you,' said he, "'I happen to know something of your story, 
and I consider it a jolly sight more discreditable to others than to you. That's my opinion, and I don't care who knows it. So you are really and literally doing this thing with your own two hands? Literally, as yet. And who looks after you? Oh, no one comes near me, but I am bound to say that I have learned to look pretty well after myself. I have found it absolutely necessary for my work. Cooking for yourself and all that sort of thing? Cooking and even killing when necessary. Is the boycott as wide and as bad as all that? It is no worse than I deserve. The visitor, looking sharply to see whether this was cant, was convinced of its sincerity at a glance, though he loudly disagreed with the opinion. I call it a jolly shame, said he, but I'm not going to hurt your feelings by expressing mine. I'm the last man to rake up the past. But it would be a different thing if you had really fired the church. That was the last iniquity charging you with that. How do I know you didn't? There was a young friend of mine on the bench, and I had it from him as a fact, with a jolly lot more besides. Now, show me what you've done before I go. This did not take a minute. There was so little to show for the first long year and more of scraping, repointing, or rebuilding from the ground. Save at the end where they had stood talking, there was scarcely a wall that reached to their shoulders, and their tour of inspection was closely followed from the road. It was conducted with few words on either side, though the noble earl muttered several which would not have been muttered in other company. In the end he made a startling undertaking. He would not only send as much more stone as was required, but neither the stuff nor its delivery should cost Mr. Carlton a penny. Carlton turned to deeper bronze, but begged as a favour to be allowed to pay. The new church was his debt to the parish. It was the one debt that he would pay. The uttermost farthing and the least last stone were to have come out of his own pocket. That had been his undertaking, it was still his heart's ambition, but as such he saw its unworthy side, and would place himself in his lordship's hands sooner than be swayed by false pride in such a matter. "'Then you shall pay through the nose,' the other promised him, "'and I'm damned if I don't think all the more of you. I beg your pardon, I was trying not to swear, but I never could stand Parsons, and I suppose it'll shock you when I tell you straight that you're the best I've struck. You're a man, you are, and I take off my hat to you." He did so openly before the wide eyes and wider mouths of those watching from the road, and so ended an incident which Sir Wilton Gleed described as one of the most scandalous in all his experience. "'Birds of a feather,' was, however, his ready and untiring comment, and the saying went from door to door as, not guilty, but don't do it again, had gone before it, for there is nothing like a time-worn saying to crystallize a widespread sentiment. This one did not come to Robert Carlton's ears, but he was perhaps the first to whom the obvious comment had occurred, and its easy justification did a little damp the glow in which his latest champion had left him. It were better to have won the allegiance of a better man. Let him, then, be truly and duly thankful, for with each waning year he had more and more occasion. Surely the heart of man was beginning at last to soften towards an erring brother 
who repented very bitterly of his sin, and who was doing faithfully the little that he could to undo the least of his sin's results. Ah, that he could have done more! Ah, that by dying he could bring the dead to life! He was only a man, he could only suffer in his turn. That he had done, was doing, and was still to do, and he thanked God for it again, so much of the old spirit still endured. Yet he was none the less thankful for every token of pardon or of pity for mere men. He knew that many would justly execrate his name until the end. He knew of one at least who would never forgive him in this life. This one came on a moonlight night in the spring of this fourth year, came limping into the churchyard leaning on his great stick and growling savagely to himself, little suspecting that he had a Carlton caught in the ruins, listening, watching, fascinated, from one of those ragged interstices with which even his perseverance and even his ingenuity could scarcely cope. To be exact, it was, or was to be, the mullioned window in the south transept, and as Musk advanced past this angle of the building, the clergyman first leaned, then crept over the sill to watch him. He stole into the open. Musk had his back turned. His shoulders were very round. Carlton knew well at what grave the other stood staring, and his heart stirred heavily within him. Oh, his wickedness! Oh, his sin! How could there be any forgiveness in heaven or on earth for him, a clergyman? The poor old man, so old, so bent, he must speak to him, he must throw himself at his feet, so bent, so lame. Oh, that that stick might strike the life out of him then and there! He was creeping forward. Suddenly he stopped. Musk was stooping, moving his stick to and fro across the grave, with a sweeping movement, as of a scythe. What was he doing? Carlton remembered, divined, and his blood ran cold. The snowdrops were out. He had put some on the grave. It had no stone, no name. It was only the tidiest and the greenest mound in all the churchyard. He saw to that. And yet his flowers desecrated it, must be swept to the winds. Musk had come away. He was looking at the south wall, where it had obviously been rebuilt. Carlton was skulking in the porch. The high moon fell heavily on the upturned face, covering it with white patches and black wrinkles, and these were working like a seething mass, but for a long time the great frame stood motionless. Then, in a flash, a huge fist flew from the huge shoulder, struck the sandstone a sickening blow, swung round and was shaken at the rectory through the trees until the blood dripped from the mangled knuckles. Carlton was so near that he could both see and hear the heavy drops. He drew further within the porch. He had also seen his enemy's face. Carlton had the fair mind and the true eye of the exceptional man. He saw most things immediately as they really were, not as he wished to see them, still less as they affected himself. He saw the moonlit face of Jasper Musk for many a day. It did not haunt him. He could have dismissed the vision from his mind at will. He preferred to consider it calmly in a white light. There was hate, undying and invincible. There was something to respect. 
Carlton compared the petty, though persistent, enmity of Sir Wilton Gleed with the great dumb hatred of Jasper Musk. The last was inexorable as it was just, the first not wholly one or the other, or Carlton was mistaken in the smaller man. Sir Wilton might be the last man on earth to forgive him, yet in the very end he would follow the world, supposing for a moment that the world ever led. But Jasper Musk would hate the harder as the hate of others dwindled and died. This conviction cast no new shadow across Carlton's life, but it brought a new name into his prayers and put the fine edge on an old anxiety. He had always been anxious about his child, though in the beginning that sense had been overborne by others. Now, however, it was acute enough. What was becoming of the boy? Did he live? Was Musk bringing him up? Was he kindly treated? Yes, yes, they would be kind enough. Carlton trusted his enemy there, but his own position was none the less grieving as he came to realize what it was. He had no position at all towards the child, no rights, no control, no voice, no locus standi whatsoever. Was it better so or worse? What were they teaching the child? Would he also grow up to deny God and to execrate the name of his unworthy minister? Yes, it was a shadow, but no new one. It only fell heavier and stretched further than before. And gradually Carlton became obsessed with the idea that he must do something, take some step, give some earnest of voluntary responsibility, no matter what new humiliation awaited him. But what to do? What step to take for the best? As life grew a very little easier in other ways that have been shown, this problem came upon Carlton as a fresh complication, and as a poignant reminder of his original wickedness. It was not, however, a problem to be solved out of hand. It required infinite thought and ceaseless prayer for that right judgment for which Robert Carlton now again looked upward as well as within. But while he thought, and even while he prayed, the walls were still growing under his hands. And in his work he was strangely and serenely happy. There were no more spasmodic joys and qualms. Enormous difficulties lay between him and the impossible roof. He was at once artist and man enough to be stimulated by these. He drew in chalk upon the bare floors of his disused rooms, full-sized diagrams of all his arches, divided into as many parts as there were to be stones, according to the easy rule set forth in his precious book. Then he collected all the boxes, tin, wood, and cardboard that he could find upon the premises, and cut these up into numbered patterns coinciding exactly with the diagrams on the floor, thus providing himself with evening occupation for a whole winter, and having all in readiness by the spring. Summer, however, found him still in travail, with a mullioned window in the north transept, and the mullion and the tracery he was omitting altogether. The bare arch beat him long enough. Prolonged solitude may debase a man to the savage, or exalt him to the saint. It never leaves him the mere man he was. Robert Carlton was still too human to merit for a moment the hyperbole of saint. Nevertheless, he developed in his loneliness several of those traits which are less of this world than of a better. 
His mind dwelt continuously upon holy things. It had ceased altogether to feed upon itself. He had suffered no more sickness, either of body or of soul, such as that which had threatened to destroy both in the first awful winter. The whole man was chastened, purified, simplified and refined by the consuming fires through which he had passed. His faith had never been stronger than it was now. It had never, never been so near in sheer simplicity to the faith of a little child. In a word, and little as he knew it, this great sinner, proven libertine, suspected incendiary, was now living in the very sight and smile of God. And even his humblest creatures loved and trusted him as never in the days of prosperity and good report. For now he loved them first. Nature, indeed, had not endowed him with that sympathetic insight into inferior life, that genius for herself, which is born in most people who are to have it at all. To Robert Carlton the talent only came in his lonely and dishonoured prime, as the solace of his exile, as a new interest and occupation for his mind, and surely also as a sign of grace returning. There grew upon him in these years the knowledge and love of very little things, trodden underfoot or brushed aside until now. A larger passion for nature in all her moods and all their manifestations, and above all the equal peace and independence of him to whom the grasses whisper and the elements sing. So one wind braced him to titanic effort, and another confirmed him in patient toil, and another relaxed both mind and members and merited ease. So he came to know the birds about him, almost as a shepherd knows his sheep, and even to discover some individuality beneath the feathers. There was one huge sparrow, a perfect demon for the crumbs which Carlton strewed every morning near the scene of his day's work, so that he might not be quite alone. The lowest human qualities came out in this small bird until finally and with infinite ingenuity it was trapped, rationed, and compelled to watch a feast of the smaller fry through the wires of a cage. Then there was a robin which in time came to perch upon the solitary's hat while he worked. Only in the beginning there were crumbs in the brim. And again there was a starling that entertained him by the hour together, and all for love from an elder bush close to the shed. But each of these years brought riper knowledge, until God's leafy acre, with its canopy of changing sky, both teeming with life to his quickened vision, became not only the outcast's second Bible, but all the almanac he needed or possessed. With no newspaper to distract his mind, and perhaps not a letter or a human voice for months, it was on bird and leaf that he came to rely for the time of year, while the field of his research was greatly extended by nocturnal exercise upon the pine serrated plateau beyond the church. Now the tips of the chestnut twigs might bulge and bud, but spring was not spring until the plover paraded his new black breast, or a peewit rose screaming at the midnight intruder. All summer the small bird was king, hedgerows twittered, crumbs were scorned, man was jilted for slug and worm. But the end came in sight with the home-bred mallard, flying feebly in his summer feathers, 
and the flight of the wild duck was the end of all. The third year found Carlton watching for the mallard as his bird of ill omen, and redoubling his efforts while his ear prepared for the shrill music of the full-grown quills in final flight. Harsh experience had taught him how little he could do, with any certainty or any continuity, in the season when the little birds and he were best friends. It was late in May, and the church would soon be hidden for another summer. Meanwhile Carlton was still at work upon his transept window, in a corner which a great stack of undressed sandstone made invisible from the lane, as it already was from the road. The folk from other villages were beginning to stop and watch him longer than he liked, and he did not care to be a sinecure at all. He only asked to build his church in peace, and with it an example which should do at least a little to counteract the one he had already set. And he meant both for his own people, not for the outlying world. He really feared a reaction in his favour on the part of the sentimental outsider. It would do him fresh injury in the eyes of many of whom he honestly longed to win back in the end. Moreover, his head was very level in these days. He saw nothing heroic in his own conduct. With all his wish to undo a little of the harm that he had done to others, there was a very human eagerness to redeem his own past, so far as that was possible, upon earth. Carlton was never unaware of this incentive. He entertained no illusions about himself, nor did he wish to create any in others. For example, there was his work. It was never easy, sometimes hopeless, always fascinating. But the man himself desired no credit for devotion to labour, which he loved for its own sake, and in which he was still capable, but no longer ashamed, of forgetting the past. The transept window engrossed him to the last degree. Mullion or no mullion, it involved the largest arch that Carlton had yet attempted, and already it alone had occupied many weeks. The patterns had been the easy recreation of his winter evenings, but it had taken him all the spring to reproduce a score of these in solid stone, for though the walls were coarse rubble, the windows must have ashlar facings, to be as they had been before, and ashlar is to coarse rubble what broadcloth is to Harris Tweed. What with indefatigable labour, however, and the general proficiency which he had now attained in his self-taught craft, Carton had his jams up by the end of May, and his arched framework fixed between them, all ready to support the arch itself. He was now engaged upon the nine wedge-shaped stones to form the latter, working each to the fine ashlar finish, as also to the exact dimensions of its fellow in tin, wood, or cardboard, and laying them in couples on alternate sides of the wooden centre, so as to weight it evenly as the book ordained. It was the middle of the afternoon, and the quiet corner was already in shadow. Beyond, the wet grass glistened, for the day was a duel between sun and rain. Carlton was taking the busier advantage of a brilliant interval, and roughing out a new voussoir with the bold precision of the expert mason. Ting, 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 fell the hammer on the cold chisel, the soft, wet sandstone peeled off in curling flakes, the quick strokes rang like a bell through the cool and cleanly air. 
It had been honest rain, and it was honest sunshine. The green world broke freshly upon all the senses. Every colour was more vivid than its wont, from the reddish-yellow of the rain-soaked stone to the lilac and laburnum in the rectory garden, from the creamy castles of the full-blown chestnuts to the emerald sprays which were all that the slower elms had as yet to show against an uncertain sky. Every inch of earth, every blade and petal, was contributing its quota to the sweet summer smell. The birds sang, the bees hummed, the hammer rang. And Carlton was so intent upon his task, so bent upon making up for time lost that day, that it might have been midwinter for the little he looked and listened. Yet he heard and saw none the less, and his face was filled with quiet peace. In appearance he was many years older. At a distance he might have passed for the father of the man who had drawn a larger congregation than the old church would hold. His hair was grey, his beard was grizzled, incessant manual toil had aged him even more by giving his body a constant stoop, and the hands were the hands of a labouring man. But the brown eye, once inflammable, was now all gentleness and humility, the whole face was sweetened and exalted by solitude and suffering. In expression, more patient, less austere, though the untrained beard and moustache, hiding mouth and jaw, had something to do with this. To his gentleness, however, there was striking testimony even now, as his hammer rained ringing blows upon the cold chisel, for within easy reach of it perched the tame robin on another stone, quizzically watching the performance. Then, in the same moment, three things happened. The robin flew away, Carlton turned his head, and the ringing blows broke off. End of chapter 20